Hello, everybody, and welcome to Lost Explorers. My name is J. David Osborne, and that is Chris Sacknesum. Chris, how are you doing this evening? David, I'm pretty well. We had a really exciting morning of like total weird fog. It was like back to like the depths of the Bay Area. I mean, it was like 20 foot visibility. It was absolutely fabulous. But it took me an hour and 45 minutes to get from my house to campus because the traffic was so backed up. But mm -hmm. I don't know. I think that mystical weather and what could be more mystical than deep fog? Uh, I think it's worth it. You know, it's like uh, I have put on some comfort food, you know, as a consequence. Uh, you, you do put on some snuggly stuff. You, you do some things to deal with winter. But I would much prefer weird fog with coyotes echoing around than blizzards back in upstate New York. Absolutely. How are you? How are I'm, you good. I'm good. I prefer fog as well. I really like, we have a fog right now. In fact, we were out of school on Monday due to icy weather, just very well-timed ice that came it's in like about. It's a snow day for you. <clears throat> Is that going to accumulate at the end of the year? No, no, because what they do is they call it a virtual day and we give the kids an assignment on Google Classroom and you want to guess how many of them do it? Not zero, not zero, but close, close enough to zero. Yeah, close enough to zero for that to be a good guess. Um, but we went back today and, you know, I won't get into too many of the details on the live mic but you know we had a bit of a uh a crisis at the school a bit of a lockdown and uh yeah and so i was pretty much by myself for two hours because it, the crisis happened during my planning period and i just got work done opened up my computer and worked on some edits because i'm getting back into that you know i just i really need the extra 1500 bucks a month that editing brings. And so uh, until I'm able to get my, my writing income up to that level, um, I guess I'll have to take on edits because Rios is so busy with, uh, with Gus and cooking and cleaning and all the stuff that has to keep the house the way it is. Um, she can't, she could not realistically go out and get a job. So, so I'm back to that and I have mixed feelings about it. I do have mixed feelings about it because I don't consider myself an editor. I consider myself a writer. Uh, but, you know, you do what you got to do to make money. So that's where we're at. You absolutely do. Um, you know, at some point, I think we do need to hear about and listeners need to hear about because we care. There are a lot of people who care, you know. Uh, when Gus came along, I, I heard from people who, you know, were really, you know, involved, mm -hmm. you, you know, you know. In a personal way, I know it's all virtual, but it's it still, nonetheless, that's kind of the way we, we work today. I, I think we're going to need to hear more about the Osborne household change in dynamics of mm. Mr. Osborne going to becoming a Highlander and <laughs> teaching mm -hmm. in high school and Leo's moving back to being uh, kind of the mom at home. Yeah. So yeah. 
I, I don't know how we do. I, I think that that should probably flavor its way in or lace its way in across topics rather than be the focal point. But I yeah. think it's really, um, you know, I, I really feel for your age situation. Uh, I have a couple of, of key points. I, I, some Gen X people who I trained up and, and, and a couple well, one really crucial marriage that came out of my advertising agency. They're now, you know, well, they're, they're pushing 50 into their fifties and their kids are all grown up or, mm -hmm. or leaving uh, high school and into college or university or something. And I really relate to them I have the connection with my Gen Z students and I tend to think of them only really I can, my only focal point is my students, but I've got 51 of them. But I think your age group is in a really, really tricky point of, you know, the family, mm -hmm. the marriage, uh, money, you know, mm -hmm. it's the crunch point. And you know, if I were a politician running, and I am thinking about this, I would really look at your situation and go, well, okay, how do we make life easier for that group of people? Because mm -hmm. the older people are dying no matter what we fucking do. Mm -hmm. There is no end. My mom's going to go. And she's, you know, in, in some sense, you know, you'd say she's past her time. 96, she's had a great life. Someone, you know, my, I, I've lost so many friends, mm -hmm. you know, and, mm -hmm. and some of them were through traumatic accident because, you know, thrill seeker nutcases. Yes, I accept that. And that could have happened to me many times. Uh, but also, you know, cancer and, and inevitable, you know, just, you know, it's just happening. But I think that what you're you're involved in is a really, really complicated situation. And I I do think back on my life at your age and just the stresses and pressures that I was under. I mean, I think I was working many times at 14, 15 hours a day. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, it was intense. <clears throat> And mm -hmm. I, I really think that we we need to get uh, the only political statement I'm going to make for a while. Anyway, I really hope that we recognize uh, your situation, because I think that's, you know, you're not a Gen Zer. You're a real adult. You're, mm -hmm. you know, you're teaching, you've got a child, you've got a long run, you've got a long term relationship. We need to sort of make life more optimistic for not you, just you and Rios and Gus. I mean, I'm all in favor of that because I, you know, I love you all and you're my close contact there. But I think that emblematically mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. people in your situation. Yes. Uh, Yes, that's where some change can happen, because frankly, I mean, I want a little bit more help on my end. I really do. I really do. I think there's some really bad things happening 
for people my age. But on the other hand, I'm also willing to say, well, you know, how much more change can I really bring to bear? Whereas I think that you've got hopefully 30 or more years. Um, so that's just a thought there. I don't know. Yeah. No, I agree. I think that the emblematic nature of it is important too. I think that there are some real practical things that need to be done. I don't know how they get done, but they need to be done. Uh, rent obviously has got to go down. You've got to free up about an extra 500 bucks for people every month. Because my theory is that what starts to get to people is this realization that they cannot, uh, they can't spend even a little. I think that when the bills are all said and done and the ominous, disgusting uh, uh, creep of subscription services have all taken their their pound of flesh every month, you just don't have money to to do something nice, to take your kid to Chuck E. Cheese. You know, I mean, you you said this before, and I think this is a great way place to introduce reintroduce the idea of um, the Indonesian term for kind of going walkabout or just you know having some free time, just free freaking freestyling, jalan jalan. You mm -hmm. know, the moment where, and we're we're going to apply this to an economic frame where you you just don't have everything overcommitted and you're mm -hmm. always up against the wall and you feel like you're turned to the wall and bending over and you just want a little bit of room to i don't know do chuck e cheese or do yeah. something you know like a spa for rio something that just yeah a little exactly. bit of something that's you know yep. not purpose buy a nice book a nice a nice rare book once a month as yeah. a treat for yourself, you know, something, something, um, you know, I think that's what it is. I think that the economic system as we have it for the average man on the street is such that it has found a way to push you until it gets every single dollar out of your pocket. And there's numerous news articles that seem to come out every week about how you know, 60% of Americans are one disaster away from bankruptcy. Oh. I mean, can we fix that, please? Can we make it so that you can have a little bit in savings? 500 bucks a month. That's all I'm saying. 500 bucks well, that you can you know, put away. I mean, this is going to become so crucial in the election year. And it's not that, that any president is entirely responsible for this. But, you know, our tendency is to blame, you know... <laughs> the authority figures and mm -hmm. if we don't get out of this situation now we're in uh, i mean we're going to kill off yeah uh, so many great retail businesses that have survived COVID who are doing good business online but i i think that we're going to actually break the whole spirit of because we all are committed to a certain level of consumerism not just mm -hmm. capitalism but consumerism you know, yep. a little bit of fun of being able to get a treat here and there. I mean, Jesus, I mean, our treats, my treat, you know, but we know this, we all know this. We know we're going to have to make some changes, both individually 
family-wise under our own roofs, but the government, the economy at large, is going to have to play ball with us. Otherwise, uh, I think there will be an enormous upheaval. But yeah, I, I totally that. agree. I totally agree. For today, what is your band? Okay, we're going to go fun. We're going to yeah. go fun because fun is what we're missing. Fun is what we're missing. We're going to reinstate fun. This band is called Panty Raid, which Let's was go. a great tradition. They do perform, though, in anti-facial recognition masks. I don't know if you've seen those, but they're really yeah. quite interesting. They're sort of nubbled. They they try to break up the computer frame, and I like that. Their album is called Pep Rally. I think we all need a pep rally. I was just at the pep school, which is the physiological, psychological, emotional laboratory at UNLV. Exciting things to share in the future about that connection. I've made some... Uh, connections with strange people but i'm thinking a pep rally in a more conventional old school highlanders oklahoma sense of you know mm -hmm. high school cheer so their music is a mix of high school and college cheers with old coffee house folk music like unto the Kingston Trio and Peter, Paul, and Mary and Josh White. The kicker is incomprehensible lyrics in some language they've invented all on their own. So they have rejigged a 25-year mythology of 1950s post-war panty raid, you know, rah, 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 sis, boom, bah, moving to the coffee house and political concerns and also, you know, kind of lyrical, nice, you know, you're leaving on a jet plane sort of thing, John Denver, that whole sort of weird melange of pre-60s real riotous, angry stuff. And yet none of it is actually comprehensible because they've invented their own lyrics and language. And it sounds right. It sounds melodically right. Mm -hmm. We get cheers that are in rhythm. Hey, oh, lean to the left, lean to the right, stand up, sit down, fight, fight, fight. Then... Dun, 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 dun. You know, so it's all musically kind of working, but it's not linguistically working, and it's a head fuck. Have you heard foreign people do their impression of Americans speaking English? People who don't speak English, somebody yeah. from Korea or Russia. That's like who I'm teaching. Yeah, they will do. Yeah, they'll do videos. I'm teaching uh, those people. I saw a really good one with an Arab guy. Uh, and he was he basically he was speaking Arabic and then he was saying, you know, this is what Americans sound like. And you listen to it and it's really uncanny and funny because it does sound he's got the cadence and the way that we speak down. But it's all nonsense words. 
with a few thrown in there that he's probably heard here and there. But I encourage listeners to look that up. It's very interesting to hear about how you are perceived because I feel like you and I could do an impression of what we think Japanese sounds like or Russian sounds like without knowing knowing any, any Russian words. And that's what your band reminds me of. It reminds me of someone who has melded these two styles together, but has, uh, I, I like it because it, it's, it's actually, uh, sort of a commentary on that too, at the same time, because it's completely removed all symbolic language. It's an, it's an emblematic band. That's right? important. That that's the important distinction, David. And thank you for making that clear and helping listeners really understand that, you know, it's breaking free of the semantic level of language. Yeah. Getting through to the musical and immediate physical level of language, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And I think that's really the crucial thing for us all to remember is that, you know, the semantics is that that's not the first level of language. That's the third level at Mm -hmm. best. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. We're working on other levels all the time. Absolutely. What is your aphorism for today? Okay. Okay. I'm really thinking that we need to give ourselves a bit more credit. I'm tired of uh, the negativity. So I thought of this. So many of our most sincere thoughts, if physically enacted in any way, would make us feel vulnerable to foolishness rather than shame or fear, which we fear so much. You know, I I really think that we're... Honestly, when I think about all the things I don't say, Mm -hmm. you know, I do have those moments. My God, what a fucking hot ass. You know, mm-hmm. oh, mm-hmm. you know, I, I'm not going to apologize for that. But I think f- by by far and away, by ninety nine thousand to one, much of my suppressed thought is really encouraging, supporting. You know, I would write all my students and and tell them good. I would just I would pour forth good news and support and encouragement. And I I really think that. A lot of people are like this. I don't think Freud had it right. I think Freud had a lot right. But I don't think he had it right in the sense of we're repressing certain kinds of thoughts. I think we're repressing a lot of kinds of thoughts. And my suggestion is that a lot of them are thoughts that would make us seem softer, kinder, vulnerable foolish and and they're not things that we would go oh my god i'm gonna have to apologize for that or that was monstrous or that was pornographic or you know no i i I think that's kind of squizzed i really do i don't think that's right i think i think most people really have a lot of i don't know generally good vibes and we just run out of energy to put it forth you know 
Yeah, this dovetails with something that I've been thinking about with teaching, because I do think that after you've been doing it for a few months, if you're serious about it, you enter this kind of state. I've been thinking exactly about what you've been talking about, where you do speak kindly, which runs counter to how people think it goes. People think that over time, teachers become more hardened and grizzled and angry with the students. But that hasn't been the case, my case at all. I get frustrated with them, but I don't dislike them and I don't begrudge my current position in life. In fact, I'm very thankful for it. I'm grateful every day. And so you really become a kind of clown goofball at times in front of them. Yeah. And you do say things that are uh, that some people would think would make you you vulnerable, right? You know, I told a kid the other day because um, she had written this great essay and I said, you're a really good writer. Have you considered writing as a, as, and I was, you know, just kind of giving her all this encouragement and I can't think of a time before I became a teacher that I pursued complimenting somebody that much or mm. just making stupid jokes. Right. I mean, I like to make up uh nonsense mnemonics, mnemonics that, that don't really make any sense. So I said, uh, you know, we're going to study today for the ACT. And then my mnemonic was, uh, or uh, it was always champion test doesn't make any sense, but that kind of goofy silliness uh, and leading with the heart, I think is good. I think it's good. I don't think you can be a, a, a stern captain all the time. You have to be human too, human, but weird and enigmatic. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that says it all. I think that I think that's what, you know. Well, I think what it means is you want to derive your captaincy and your stewardship from your own merits, your own yep. performance, rather than some sort of hierarchical structure that has been yep. inherited that you may not count on. And, and you you might personally very much disbelieve you know mm -hmm. isn't you know to, to some extent isn't this the real problem that a whole generation maybe a generation and a half maybe two didn't want to be authority figures they resented the, they didn't feel comfortable with that so they weren't good captains and stewards mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. they weren't mm -hmm. or they became like people like frank zappa you know who were you know like over overly you know captain in one sense and not enough in another i think this is one of the big problems it goes back to something we mentioned in our last episode of the sunny bono you know public mm -hmm. service announcement of like one day you'll be the older generation you know i mean how do you become a captain you know and mm -hmm. but this is worked out at i think fifth or sixth grade level, you know, mm -hmm. on the playground. People are natural captains, natural aristocrats, as Melville, you know, said. And I think that we're, what we're all worried about is hierarchy and, you know, order and, you know, structure. And, and like, well, that progressive idea has failed in every major American city. Mm-hmm. It's so many families, and we are so tired of it. It just 
good intentions that have not worked. Someone has to be captain. Someone has to lead. And the idea that, well, we could just have open plan, you know, open plan offices and flatten out hierarchies. You know, those people have misconstrued the nature of life. Yeah. And by the way, they're also liars. That that's that's a kind of playing possum so that they can take power that they don't deserve and didn't earn for themselves. Anybody who says that, that we shouldn't have hierarchy, I do not believe that they believe that. I think that they are oh, I I agree. Yeah. yeah, they're, yeah. they're gunning for the power. They're gunning for the power. You can imagine. Yep. The people who talk the most about how they're underrepresented and uh, you know, how they don't have like they're tired of these systems squashing them. What they're really telling you is their secret heart about what they want to do when they are in power. They're telling you to your face because, you know, vampires have to be let in. That's the whole that's the whole trick of these evil demons is that they have to tell you exactly what they're going to do, but they have to do it in a roundabout way. You know, I love that idea that people have to tell you their secret heart. I really do believe that's true. I think that, you know, I think interestingly enough, a lot of, um, well, a couple of like people in serious law enforcement, like an FBI special agent and a homicide detective that I know, they would absolutely agree with that. That yeah. people need to actually confess their secret heart. And this is one of the ways that 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 you know they give themselves away. You mm -hmm. know, and we all do. I think that's a very, very but I think that's a lovely way to phrase that, David. And I think that's always something you do so well that just bring a, a zing into it. Um okay, are you ready for your imaginative challenge? I'm ready. Hit me. All right, okay. Well, I'm again going to, following up on that wonderful episode of Swift Current Saskatchewan. Yes. I'm going to put you into another situation, which I kind of nominally uh, had a, a connection with, but you are free to exaggerate and blow this out much more fully than fortunately what happened. But the scenario is this. My art director business partner and I were faced with what many, you know, we ran a boutique advertising agency. You could call it that. But I think a lot of people at street level would say it was a small business. Mm -hmm. Fair enough. Like many small businesses. Well, we had an $80,000 bad debt. Mm. That was a lot of money for us back then. It's still a lot of fucking money. It was mm -hmm. a lot of money for us then. Well, I happened to mention it to... I was happily married then. Uh, and one of my wife's... Uh, relatives was an english dude they were living in new south wales and i really liked him and he said oh well i know someone who may be able to help you 
I said, oh, okay. Well, as it evolved, the person to help was a serious, serious Irish gangster standover man, thug, a bill collector on a major level. And I mistakenly reached out to him with just a hint of suggestion. You know, what, what could we do here? I had not known that in addition to being Irish, as in pugnacious Irish, mm -hmm. and very skilled in physical combat, guns, and demolition, he was a loon, a loose cannon. And there was a moment where we thought he might just not only murder the people we were trying to collect our money from, but just start taking numbers and lives just indefinitely. So your challenge is to put yourself in that position of you're a small business, maybe think it from a broken river point of, maybe put it in Oklahoma terms, but you call upon a gangster from the real world of gangsters to collect a debt that really matters to you. I think 80,000 bucks is a good amount. It's not like $800,000, that's, that's beyond mm -hmm. your scope. Um, but the theme here is loose cannon, and you can't call back the dog if it's a pit bull. You know, mm -hmm. you, can't, you can't call it back. And there was a real moment of humor where we tried to restrain this absolutely dedicated individual but it was like trying to call back a torpedo mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so we had to do some other things but i think that's a fun thing because you are a small business you are, you understand that idea you understand people owing you money you understand yep. that eighty thousand dollars is kind of a good reference point i mean eight million dollars wouldn't mean anything to you that would be abstract you mm -hmm. know uh, but this is money that, that is food in your son's mouth and your wife being happy and you not, you being able to sleep, but you've somehow, somehow let loose a wonderful character. And it could be a sort of Saxon, Oklahoma type character, could be an Irishman, I, it could be anybody. You've got to invent this sort of rogue a warrior who is trying to do right by you, but may just desecrate, disseminate the whole world. If you I like it. it, I like it. All right. Loose cannon or you can't call back the dogs. That's my, that was my working title. I like that. All right, cool. So, Moving into the main segment of the show, show here, we've got some show notes. Hidden terrain, what appears to be mythic exhaustion, the Jungian collective unconsciousness turned to Dust Bowl, may be a socially engineered fiction. 
Our psychological and mental health apparatus is dysfunctional and overwhelmed. All our approaches on social center on social public behaviors. As several noted sex researchers lament, what incentive do people have to share their private psychic experiences honestly? Is it necessarily obvious that they can do this, even if they desired to do so? Meanwhile, imagination on almost every day-to-day level is discouraged. We find ourselves fixated on an aspect of mind that is fundamentally limited and in denial of one that must be at least provisionally viewed as unlimited. The result is a crisis-level imbalance between logos and mythos on the scale of culture, where logos has degenerated into a hyper-specialized autistic focus on numeros, pure computational processing, and mythos is cut off from hypnos at the intimate personal level. Kerouac's unspeakable visions of the individual are now entirely in shadow, outlawed. What we value is the visible, physical, and performative. And we bring up COVID masks here in a second. But first, what do we mean by, for listeners, what do we mean by logos and mythos? Okay, well, logos really speaks to the rational, intellectual, factual, statistical, computational processing of the universe. It appeals to, uh, you know, a certain hemisphere of the brain. Mythos, I would argue, is a larger concept that not only speaks to the other so-called hemisphere of the brain, but is a larger idea of, and a more original idea, of the emergence of language, the emergence of culture, the emergence of ideas of magic solution. And I I, I think it might, you know, in, in my ideal sort of world, if we had an archaeology of mind and an anthropology of mind that reached back into the deep past, I would say that mythos far predates logos. I think logos is, is, is a much... Uh, later development that really is the difference between, if you want to say it in one way, mythos is strategy and logos is tactics. I think it comes out much, much later. And it emerges with tremendous force because of a mythos background. And I think we see it... um, but we see it impinging and, and crossing over. I mean, the original orientations of, say, the ancient Greeks in terms of Pythagorean ideas of, of mathematics, the permanency mm-hmm. of mathematics, the fact that mathematics underlie all of the world, that there are harmonic structures and mathematical you know, ratios that are eternal. That's a mystical, deeply mystical idea coming out of the mythos. The same with Democritus and the early atomists, the idea of of a very physical idea, which has actually survived up into our time. We we do accept, you know, the atom and the splitting of the atom is 
perhaps the biggest thing in, mod in the modern age. But all of that begins from a, what really I think is, is very fairly stated as a mystical point of view. And I, I really encourage readers to go back to Rupert Sheldrake, who's one of our heroes, uh, his first book, Towards a New Science. I think he really examines and prosecutes in very fair terms, even Richard Dawkins and some of these really hardcore materialist science don't question his uh, history and philosophy of science point of view of where these ideas originally came from, because they are mystical. You know, the idea of that that behind the world somehow lies a mathematical framework. Uh, and let's just say Pythagoras is um, the emblematic focus of that. He's not the only. Uh, there were other figures in India and China. You know, it's not just an ancient Greece or, or Western idea. But, I mean, that's a weird idea. You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's a weird, weird, weird idea that somehow behind very physical reality, including, you know, I mean, does it extend to a woman's vaginal juices, for instance, to put a really, you know, very visceral physical frame on that? Is that mathematical? I mean, where does the Pythagorean idea of the mathematics that underlies the universe, where does that stop and where does it start? So there's some weird things going on there, I think. Yeah, and I think that people who are more math-oriented would say that it is all math. But I feel like there is a, a sort of different color to the things that you're talking about. The only way I could really describe it is the word that we've already used, which is mythos. Mm. You know, I mean, it feels like story. It feels lava lamp to me. There are some things that when you think of them in terms of math, you think of numbers and angles and sharp, you know, intersecting lines. And then there are things that are squishier and more story oriented and that almost seem to exist based on the stories that have come before them. Right. Um, but that's what I've got with that. I wanted to also talk about the fact that, so we find ourselves fixated on an aspect of mind that is fundamentally limited and in denial of one that must be at least provisionally viewed as unlimited. The result is a crisis level imbalance between logos and mythos on the scale of culture. This feels like Marvel movies to me. Mm. Mar Marvel movies feel like pure logos when they're supposed to be mythos. That's a beautiful uh, way to put that, David. Mm, you know, you. I think that's a beautiful bit of pop culture criticism in one sentence. That's a lovely way to put that. That is that that really frames a lot of my problem with it. Say it again for everyone. So, you know, don't, you know, and people listening, don't be afraid of repeating yourself and thinking like, oh, well, I'm senile or something. No. Sometimes you, you really do need to repeat yourself, and that's the essence of music, rhetoric, poetry. Don't be afraid of it. David, say that again, please. Marvel movies are pure logos when they are supposed to be mythos. Um, 
I think that's a lovely insight. Yeah, they are. Uh, you use the word, word autistic here, and I'll use it as well. They they're the autistic version of Greek mythology, where there is a focus on stats and material. Uh, Iron Man's suit, Thor's hammer, Captain America's shield, the shield and the hammer and the suit, when they were invented, I would argue, were symbolic, mythological. They were directly influenced by mythological culture, but they become logos when you start wondering um, how heavy is Captain America's shield? There's a great story about Grant Morrison, who for a time was writing Batman, and as you know, is one of my heroes. I love him too, or I'd used to anyway. A fanboy asked him what kind of engine the Batmobile had in it. And he responded, the Batmobile doesn't have an engine because it's not real. There is no engine. It's just the Batmobile. And this sort of threw the guy for a loop. He said, what do you mean? What it's, like, it's a comic book. It's a story. It's a myth. You don't have to worry about that. How much, did Ze- How much does Zeus weigh? I don't know. Who would even think to ask that question but the people of now? the logos-minded people of now. And I think what you're really saying is not 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 really the logos-minded people. I think you're talking about an Asperger's autistic uh yeah. But that, I mean but it but sorry to interrupt but that it it does seem to creep outside of people who are clinically autistic. It it it's like an oh, ambient Oh my autism. word, my word it does. My word it does, but I I I'm not sure that the clinical definition you know i mean this is one of my big concerns is when we talk about people on the spectrum well then you ask about the spectrum and you say well how does that look up against the electromagnetic radiation Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. well it doesn't look very good does it it looks pretty amateurish it looks like a bunch of fourth graders with the idea of a spectrum. I mean, I would rather have the Beaufort scale of high winds. I mean, that at least makes sense, you know? Now, mm-hmm. I, I think that what we've got is is an idea that, well, this is a, you know, a, a range here of possible dysfunctional behaviors. And it's about as helpful as, you know, uh, a dumpling in the ass, really. I mean, <laughs> Well, wait a minute. Why? I mean, I I wanted to eat that dumpling. I I don't know why. You know, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense at all. And how we got to this point, but I think that what you said in the last episode was really pointing about we are so desperate to meet the standards of machine intelligence, which is is so limited which is entirely not even really logos driven. I think it's more anal retentive than that, that we've then created an enormous self-esteem crisis, for mm. culture, which then recapitulates into deeper and deeper behavioral problems. I think that was a really important insight from last episode. I think that for listeners, I, we're hoping for, we want more and more feedback 
please, because I think we're covering a lot of interesting ground. And sometimes some really big ideas slip through and get presented and they're, you know, we get lost in them too. But I think what David said there was really something important because how can anyone standing, living and breathing, not say that we have more examples of what is diagnosed, therefore labeled as autism or Asperger's? I mean, what do those things mean, really? Mm -hmm. What do those mean? And I think that that David did peel that back to a sense of, well, for starters, they're more complicated than a behavioral issue. I mean, what does that mean? They're, they're more complicated than a neurophysiological issue. Not saying that's not part of it, but what does it mean in practice? Well, it's complicated and it's intersectional, as our progressive friends love to say. It means a bunch of different things. So therefore, one diagnosis from one point of view is not going to hold up mm -hmm. a definition. Mm -hmm. You're going to need an intersectional diagnosis that says, well, maybe there is something that connects to the larger cultural mythos issue. Maybe there's something that in a Gregory Bateson sense connects to family nurture issues. Maybe there is something that connects to individual brain psychology and chemistry. Okay. But maybe all those things are working. Maybe one answer isn't sufficient. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that is where, People get really tripped up when they hear people like us talking because they think that we're speaking in a binary when we are all about triangles, we're all about tripods, we're all about third men in the woods. And sometimes the third man in the woods is the sort of phantasmagorical figure who's standing off to the periphery waiting to be tagged in, so to speak. But sometimes that third point comes from an amalgamation of the two that you're talking about. Mm. It's not It's not sitting on the fence to say that it's maybe a little bit of column A and column B. That's life. That's just how things work. So when it comes to this uh, you know, diagnosis, this overdiagnosis, I think of autism, I think that the, the problems of it are, I think that there's probably a bit of vaccine issue in there, right? That's, that's undiagnosed because nobody wants to talk about that. Uh, so I, 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 I do think it's chemical, but I also think that, you know, what do you expect to happen with people who are, uh, sort of surrounded by technology from the moment that they're born, where a screen is placed into their hands? I mean, SpongeBob SquarePants, you know, it's, it's both to the point where you end up getting, mm, in terms of my students, you end up getting some who I would call normal for them, but not normal in the sense that you and I are talking right now, because they they are they have a sense of humor. They have their own music that I don't care for. They have even their own fashion, but they also what I've noticed as a teacher is a, a seeming almost totalizing inability to think 
concept to think about things that you don't quite understand yet to mm. exist in a mythos foggy realm of uh you know light blasphemy and uh and not total understanding you know you know how guys like you and me love being in that realm where we don't quite get it yet but that's exciting yeah they don't that's like the that game. they don't like that mm. they need to know what are the rules this is a generation that's been raised on video games so what are the rules how do i win how do i get from point a to point b in the most efficient way and what that ends up doing, obviously, is, you know, you have no time to sink into any interesting ideas and you miss out on a lot of the fun of life, of not knowing, of just being mystified by things. They don't like being mystified. Okay, I'm going to weigh in totally on this and say, yes, I absolutely agree. But on the other hand, I'm going to say, I don't think this is a generational thing at all. I think this is much, this is a kind of... um class and i don't mean socioeconomic class it's a class of mind that yeah. has that is it been around for forever i mean my my family they're they're in, enormously uh capable thinkers but they're absolutely rigid and and calcified thinkers in my view they have a real belief in certain sort of structures certain sort of uh frameworks that are just like, well, wait a minute, really? Why are you? Mm -hmm. I mean, who's giving that to you? I, I'm don't, you know, when I say, when I engage with them at all on this level, I say to them, don't purport and put on me that framework because I'm encouraging you and challenging you and hoping mm -hmm. for you to break out of that and do something that's kind of fun and jellyfish exciting. You know, I mean, I, I, I think that it's not age, it's not generational. I do think it's category of mind. I think there are certain people mm -hmm, mm -hmm, that mm -hmm. simply can't get with a program that isn't highly structured. They're looking for some imprimatur, you know, whether mm -hmm. or it be. Uh, it, it, it can be family-based, it can be school-based, it can be religion or military-based. It can be anything, but they need, they don't have the confidence to go. I think that's really cool. I agree. I agree with you 100%. And I didn't mean, by the way, to suggest that it was generational. It was top of mind, but oh, you're totally yeah, right. No, it's, no, no, we're fleshing it out. That's cool. No, it's, no, it's, but you're totally right. It's, it's a, there are, there are people of all ages who have this sort of inability to wander in the fog basically that's it Honor. that's it. just well said david that yeah. you know and to enjoy that experience to enjoy being a little bit dislocated you know i mean this is the thing and down the years across the centuries this is the problem that people have because they don't recognize this category of strange individuals who have really created history and really invented the world because they went out and explored it. I mean, Sir Walter Raleigh is a great example. I mean, Elizabeth in England, you know, 
to a river in South America dealing with an electric eel. You know, mm -hmm, we've talked mm -hmm, about this mm -hmm. before. And it it just there are some people who just simply well, it's all good if they, you know, it, no one has to have courage. No one has to be strong and of spine. They can be invertebrate. We can have mm -hmm. invertebrate humans. Not everyone has to have corazon. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. That's all right. The problem is when those people start speaking and trying to teach other people, mm -hmm. that's where the problem lies. If they were just staying at home and ordering takeout and could afford that somehow, fine. But when they start to speak to younger people, when they try to create a perspective on what education is and what the nature of civilization is, then I get a little bit, you know, I get a little bit angsty, you know? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. This next paragraph is great. Imbalance plus corruption plus, wait, imbalance plus corruption and degeneration solution the whole Lost Explorers program celebrates a resurgence of hypnos as a means to nourish and reinforce mythos and rehabilitate logos by alchemizing numeros back into its original position within the family of mind. I think it could be helpful to view the angst, distress, polarity, and violence of our age as a family problem writ large. All right, let's break this down. So the resurgence of hypnos... As the, a means personal, to, the personal, the yep. personal, individual, intimate, intimate. I, I want to read. I want to really support intimacy. Uh, the intimate experience of mythos. That's what I mean by that. Mm -hmm. To reinforce mythos. So those two are directly connected. Again, intimacy, um, uh, personal uh, depth goes right into mythos. Uh, to rehabilitate logos, we're not throwing logos out by alchemizing numeros back into its original position. So, how do you alchemize numeros? Okay. Well, I think we appreciate, first of all, on a very sociological level, the individuals who are capable of creating this great technology. We love technology. I mean, I, I use it all the time, you know, in making me, you know, we're, we're using it now. So we need to celebrate those people and not denigrate those people. We're, we thank them for the connections they've made. We don't understand all about coding and all of, you know, what we want to do is, is find a meeting ground with a few of them where we can say, look, this is what we want to do. How can you... What's the back end technologically to deliver on this? Can we meet? Can we meet as commercial partners? Let's just say there's real money changing hands. We're actually paying these people. So we want to support techno people, but we don't want them to run the whole game, you know, where everything loses all significance because they're all involved in their coding. That would be like listening to... Uh, a bar conversation in Capitol Hill in Seattle with people who are paying $12 to $15 per beer and will never <laughs> play 
you know? <laughs> well, I mean, I I'm my age and I'm I'm really still actively involved in getting light. I'm really excited about that. I don't want to be some techno nerd in a plaid shirt that's worth 250 bucks and not mm -hmm. getting a woman, you know? That's not that's not my thing. No. I do not. appreciate those techno skills. So I think what we need is, is be genuinely inclusive and appreciative of what people are bringing. But, I mean, you and I have the creative ideas. I mean, if I talk to someone musically, I, I, I want them to sort of like help me out musically and get with the idea. I don't want to hear about a bunch of technical jargon. I want to hear about the application, the end result, the audience, the total picture. You know, we, you and I are like holistic people. We're connecting to people. So mm -hmm. we're, we're tired of this autistic Asperger's male thing. I mean, I, I venture to say, I don't think you have any friends in that category. I, I no. really, I, I think no. you get very bored with them. So no. we want to move to people who are capable, have the skills, and build this crystal radio lost explorers community of getting things to people, making it work, making it meaningful. And I think there are a lot of great examples. I think that, that there are great examples in the tech community. I, I think you just got to really be, you know, picking very cherry picking for the right things. I think some of burning man has been about this. Uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think we can be very optimistic, but that doesn't mean we can't be very critical as well. So okay. I think that's the number one point that let's make technology and logos thinking at large, logos thinking, uh, rational, super intellect, right angle, Asperger's, autistic thinking. Let's make that work for more humanistic celebratory drumming percussive beautiful colored painting and a lot more inclusion of female energy love it you want to hear about my i'm ready i'm so ready i this is a good loose canon story and it, this for listeners you know, David is capable of doing anything on this note in real time. I I am so amazed at his capability. So stand by. We have no idea where this will go. Okay, so I'm calling this one $80,000 in my hand by tomorrow morning. Oh, gangsta! Gangsta! Yeah! All right, so... In this case, I've attempted to open a rare bookshop in Lawton, Oklahoma. Very expensive stuff. And I run a store, I order my stock, and I hire employees. But suddenly everything goes wrong. My stock is held up and the seller is holding my deposit until I can pay the difference. I don't have the deposit because I put all that money into the store. Then the store gets broken into and the furniture and the current stock is stolen. I go to the cops, but they treat me like a criminal. Many such cases. So I decide to make a call. I ask Rios for help, and she calls someone in her family. 
Pretty soon, her cousin arrives. The cousin arrives wearing a cowboy shirt with pearl snaps and wearing what's called botas pacudas, which are what the cartel gangsters wear down there. They're these huge elf shoes. They're cowboy boots where the toe comes out as far as it possibly can. You see these guys walking around with these literally, literally two feet long points on their boots. Uh, He crossed over the border from Mexico where he had a successful career disappearing people for the Sinaloa cartel. First, he finds the people who stole the furniture. I'm thinking to myself, okay, cool. I'm going to get my stuff back. No big deal. But that's not enough for him. He ties them to a chair and begins to remove teeth. I tell him, dude, we got everything back. We can go, but he's not done. He takes one of each of their big toes as well. And he tells me it's not enough to get the money back. You have to get your pride back as well. So at this point, I am terrified of what he wants to do to the bookseller. I want to call the whole thing off, but he has become determined. So I decide the only way that I'm going to make this work is to pretend to be crazier than he is. I get friends together. We hire a bunch of porn stars and rent a space and decide to concoct a crazy revenge fantasy for the cousin that's all fake. It's all smoke and mirrors. I have to do it myself, and the tension will come from trying to keep him from getting in on the action. So we stage decapitations, castrations, and rape, uh, which is why we have the porn actors. And what follows is a slapstick gore comedy because as the cousin gets involved, he has also smuggled into the United States his pet jaguar, who he wants to feed some of these people to. And so I have to get creative and attempt to steer him away. And then it just becomes a full-on wacky gore comedy from there. Well, I love the idea of a gore comedy. Anything that has a jaguar in it, I think that's... Oh, excuse me. I think that's one of my uh, real uh, wonderful totem... Uh, animals. Uh, there's a bar here called the Green Jaguar. I haven't been because someone told me the women are too beautiful. Excuse me. Uh, but I love the idea of the cartel insight that it's not about the money. You know, I think this is, I've really gotten uh, a little bit close to some of the cartel frameworks. And I don't want to get any closer, believe me. But it's not about the money for them. I mean, people who leave $300 million, $300 million in a motel in Nuevo Laredo or Laredo, it's not about the money. It's not about the money. That's not why they oxytorch people's eyes and genitals while they hang them from a bridge. It there's it's just not about this. This is not the right way to think of it. It is a certain psychopathology that is beyond money, it's beyond drugs, and it's beyond gangsterism. It's beyond sociopathology. Uh it, it it's a it's a deep Latin American honor code 
which also repeats in Japan and certain parts of Asia. We see that with, you know, the Yakuza, you know, I mean, it, it's certain, and certainly the Mafia, I mean, it, it's a bigger thing. It's an honor code that is bigger than all of the people involved so that everyone is willing to sacrifice to the code, not to the gangsters in charge at the moment. That's not what they're doing. It's to the code. So I thought it was a really interesting response, David. Um, and I love the possibility of fun and mayhem and also the gore comedy. I think we need more gore comedy. Um, I, I, I love that idea of finding comedy in places that you wouldn't expect. I'm a real, um, I'm a sucker for that wherever it comes up. And, and often mm -hmm. I find that when I'm on airplanes and I just, you know, think, oh, I'm going to watch this. You know, I don't even know what this is. So I don't have any expectations about it. But gore comedy and your idea of gore, uh, I don't know, maybe that just seems more fun to me than what other people's idea of gore. I'd love to see you have a budget. I've said this many times. I think you need to be a film budget person doing something involving gore Mm -hmm. And in a kind of twisted, subverted, uh, repositioned, uh, revisioned way. And I, I think it would be a real big hit. Cool. Thank you. I agree. I, I hope for that too. What is my, or what is our tool and tip for today? Okay. Well, the, this tool is a big one. And I, I really mean what I say, because Dave and I always mean what we say, which we're really trying trying to be articulate in a vortex of strangeness. It's very easy to forget that we have the remarkable freedom to not respond in many situations. Even if we feel great pressure to do so, there is often real freedom to not respond but it does take courage or something like courage to exert this relates to one of the most peculiar social pressures we all face a certain level of responsiveness within certain parameters is socially expected at almost every intersection of people some implicit behavioral framework is in place. The consequences of failure to meet these vaporous, but nonetheless forceful expectations can vary greatly depending on circumstance and social context. But people who can manage to step completely outside these expectations are in a very special category. For those of us who aren't, most of us frequently feel compelled to respond socially when often we just assume not or we sense that our response is predetermined programmed the social expectation fulfills itself parasitically 
But now consider this, and this is the tool. What if you tactically selected a social interaction where you felt more comfortable than usual? You know, home court advantage here in some way. And at a select point, you very intentionally exercised your option to not respond. I submit that your non-response may well be perceived as a response and possibly especially potent one at that. This won't happen in every instance, of course, but it's worth trying for experiment's sake. Just be sincere and open-handed and not rude, but you don't need to nod, respond to everything to be connected with people. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Especially not with people you're having sex with, raising families with, building business with, doing work with, seeing every day. Have a little faith in those relationships first, that you don't need to always be chiming in on everything because mm. that weighs on our soul. We get tired. It's yeah. like clinging like, you know, right. on social right. media. That's one of the reasons why I stayed away from Facebook for so long was other people's seeming need to chime in for yeah. everything. Yeah. For everything. Yeah. You don't positive or negative, you don't have to say anything. I noticed that when I came back to because I did come back because I'm going to use Facebook to promote the show and books and things like that. So I need to have an account. But I noticed that nothing has really changed. Everybody has a fucking opinion and they feel the need to chime in. There's the, let me let me be clear too. Like there isn't anything wrong with having an opinion about everything because I certainly do, but this need to respond. Well, I tell my students, you know, it, it, uh, and I really, you know, one of the things I really do love is that I can just sincerely chime in because so many of them do it naturally. I'm not encouraging them to do something they're not already doing, but it's hand gestures. It's body movements. I got this black chick, Jada, you know, and she does a wiggle, you know, and a little bit of explanatory hand, you know, and I say, you know, never lose that. Mm -hmm. Never, ever lose that. She mm -hmm. has the capability of going to some corporate boardroom, you know, sometime mm -hmm. in the future. And I said, Jada, if you ever lose that wiggle, my ghost will come back and haunt you, you know, be expressive, use all of those tools, you know, be the dance, don't do the dance, be the dance, you know? So that's really, um, that's my tool. And here's my tip and I'm getting down to it. My question is what drugs are you on? <laughs> and I really had to think to myself about, the drugs I've been on across my life. And I don't think it's, I mean, you know, some people would go, well, I haven't been on any drugs at all. And I'm not so sure about that. 
I, I really think that there are some drugs that are good drugs or better drugs. I know certain drugs, I mean, I was fortunate. I had a great immunity to heroin. I just mm -hmm. didn't, it didn't click with me. And I, I was, you know, I had a very conventional response to cocaine. Mm-hmm. You know, in the time, I mean, on my, my all of my life problems around cocaine were repeated many times. So I was, that was completely separate and different, you know, and that's interesting. Um, I noticed that alcohol in, in my life has gone from joyful and fun and cool to also provoking some strains of anger. Mm -hmm. I'm not really, I'm not really good about Mm -hmm. uh, whereas anything related to pot in marijuana in any form uh, will never anger, you know, never mm -hmm. anger. Um, and not saying that, that that's necessarily better, but I think that we choose. And this applies to people who have never done any of these substances at all. We choose the moods that we want to emphasize. If you want to be positive, if you want to be upbeat, you will be. If you want to be angry and scrappy and difficult, you will be. If you want to be suspicious and paranoid and freaked out, you can find that without any kind of you don't have to get the coke fevers, you know. Oh shit, I'm out of cocaine, man. I, I'm I'm starting. You know, you know, a lot of drug people understand that, you know. Mm -hmm. But you don't need any of those frameworks. All of those just simply exaggerate, accentuate, and architecturalize frameworks in the mind that are there. They don't create anything new. They mm -hmm. don't. They just simply pump it up. You know, and whatever trip you're on, well, you can up it up, but the trip remains the same and you can choose a little bit about what you do to get right. Avoid Eeyore's really depressive down people. Avoid paranoid suspicion people. Keep to freshness and light yeah don't go you know it's like those old detective shows of the 1970s don't go to the warehouse to meet the gangsters without backup there's going to be stuff piling down we know that don't do it you know don't go mm -hmm. to no lonely places at midnight with alone without some backup tv has taught us a lot about drugs and about life you know, groove onto some fun things, some things that are within your grasp, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think this really applies to so many levels of just repositioning a lot of media stuff that's going on. You know, if you're going to watch porn, watch porn with, find something that really does appeal to you in a way that's not like freaked out weird, but something that's kind of beautiful, you know, mm -hmm. 
-hmm. you know, find things that make you feel good, that you don't have to feel like you're, you know, I'm all in favor of washing my hands. Okay, I do. I'm not going to do that as much as my progressive friends who do that all the time. They're always washing their hands. You know, it's like something out of a 19th century novel. Do something that makes you feel good about yourself, not something that makes you feel dirty. You know, that's as simple as that. Excellent. Awesome. Have you been dreaming? I have, and I have really a couple of really major thoughts. Uh, I have an old, old friend in Australia who is a woman who uh, she she was married most of the time I've known her, uh, but there was a moment where we you know could have connected, and I just you know I wasn't sexually attracted to her. Um, and in my dream, I encountered her again and her, I reached down for kind of embrace her sort of in a friend way, but her ass just suddenly felt really exciting to me. Mm -hmm. I mm -hmm. saw her in a new way and I wonder, you know, William James says, Perhaps even God benefits and strengthens from our faith. And I suddenly had this tremendous sense of really deep reconfiguration of my male-female thing. Of like, what if I had seen this really loyal, interesting woman in a more sexual light? What if I'd empowered her more as a woman? What if I, what if our goal is to make each other in a partner sense hotter, you know, mm -hmm. what if we just don't find, we don't pick up someone who's hot at the bar already and try to pitch to them. What if we say, look, you're really cool. And I, you know, and I'm going to engage and I'm going to invest in you and we're going to build the eroticism together. And I, I had this really profound sense that, I had missed something of a, of a real opportunity that I'd, I'd kind of done something crass and stupid. And yeah, she's, uh, she's a tall woman. She's kind of, you know, in real life, she's sort of more masculine than, than my tastes are. But I thought what in the dream, my investment of sudden energy made her more sensual and female And I thought, well, what about that working all, you know, both ways? What if mm -hmm. we can make the average guy a stud, the average woman a beauty, a voluptuous sex queen? What about that as a responsibility, you know? Mm -hmm. I thought that was a really sort of good vibe. And then I had a very, um, I had my first dream of this kind out of all of you know, all down the decades. Uh, we all know the anxiety dreams of missing, you know, an exam or missing a payment. You know, there's a, a thing where you're, you know, naked in front of people, okay? Or you're, you're supposed to show up for a, a, a test and you haven't really prepared, you should have dropped out. There are all sorts of frameworks of basic anxiety dreams. This was an interesting one for me of a couple 
So I'm single and I'm dealing now with more couples in the world. We were going to go on a trip to visit and see a kind of theater band perform at Lincoln Center in New York. And I had somehow dropped the ball and not gotten any of these details right. But the couple, they transitioned. Imagine like two silhouettes, okay, two people, Mm -hmm. three different kinds of people in my life that passed in and out of that situation. And I was suddenly confronted with this idea of, oh, I'm dealing with couples. And I'm dealing with people in secure relationships. And I was starting to romanticize that. And at just the point where I started to really get worried about that, uh, in my hand appeared a champagne gold handgun. Somewhere Mm. between, definitely not a nine millimeter, definitely between like a Colt 45 because of the graded uh, uh, hand grip. Okay, mm-hmm. between that and a twenty-five automatic, and it was a champagne gold thing, and I thought, oh, okay, well, I'm not this couple. I haven't gotten everything right, and I wonder if a lot of single people, you know, don't feel that way of just being kind of overwhelmed with the financial capability of a couple, you know, the the organizational capability. Um, I mean, it's just hard. I mean, unless you're solidly married and have been married, you know, this is not a new couple thing late in life. This is something that you've got to be confronted with a two-headed creature, you know? Mm-hmm. I think it is an interesting question for our time of, you know, will people, I mean, I don't know if, I don't think you think of yourself as a two-headed creature, uh, but I think it, I think some people do. And I think a lot of us who are single at any age, and I've been married, you know, more than a few times, <laughs> you know, um, it's just interesting how that framed itself into a dream for the first time in my life. I've not ever experienced that in any of my dream records. So for people who do record their dreams, keep doing it, please. Because you do see moments where there is a real transition and real change. Excellent. Perfect. Well, that'll do it for today. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, everyone. You know, be safe and be well. It's a foggy night again tonight here. I hope it's clearer where you are, but be, be safe and be well. Thank you for joining us. You know, Dave and I really appreciate it.